Well, it is a joy to be here with you and to talk about something as important as marriage. But I want to just kind of give some big disclaimers that I hope will help everybody just breathe a little easier. I know we're all at different places, perhaps, in where you are in your marriage, where you are in the walk, walk with the Lord, where you are, maybe even just considering Christianity. I don't know. In a room this size, there are differences all over. And so I want to make sure you know, some of you know me well, and so then you know I'm an idiot. Some of you don't know me at all, and I don't want you to be tense thinking, I guess that's that guy that has this perfect marriage, and he's just hammering us about the role of the husband and what. So the rest of you that know me say, turn to somebody and say, no, he's an idiot. He's, he was a terrible husband. So just know that, because I can't just tell an hour's worth of stories about how bad I've been, because in this hour, I'm supposed to talk about the role of the husband. But I want you to know that. I grew up in the church. I was saved at seven. I was in Bible teaching churches. I went to Bible college, right? You would think that would solve all your problems. And then got married to a girl that I met at Bible college. And some of you are going to really feel better about this. And then we had a horrible marriage. But she repented. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) We had a horrible marriage. Largely because of me. Me. And we're not talking about spouse abuse. We're not talking about hitting. I wasn't dropping the F-bomb. But it was just garden variety. The stuff that if you're married, and that's probably almost everybody in here, you know. It doesn't have to be huge stuff to end up with a horrible marriage. Something as, if we're not careful, we can say something as small as pride. Is that small? Oh man, pride's killing marriages. Something as garden variety as, and this this word may fall flat on you unless you're married, selfishness. Does that get in the way of a good marriage? You know, so I just came in with this mindset of, oh, it's been Brad Bigney up until now, and now he has a wife. And I didn't wake up thinking, and she's here. I mean, I wasn't so stupid as to think, and she's here to bring me the head of something on a platter and a frosty mug. (laughs) But in a sense, I was still guilty of thinking, I still just largely do everything I used to do. And oh, by the way, I have a wife and we can have sex. Because I did grow up in the church. So it was like, don't have sex and marry a Christian. Don't have sex. And marry a Christian, there there weren't a lot of other details given in the youth group. That's about it. So in my mind, I had an A plus by God's grace, by God's grace. And it is only the grace of God. I ended up getting married still having not had sex. And I married a Christian. But oh my goodness, I was still so selfish and prideful And it was still largely my agenda, my kingdom come, my will be done. And we were like, not for a weekend. How long was it bad, baby? Like three to five years. I mean, bad. And and to compound it, imagine some of you have had struggles or you're in them now, but at least you're in a nice house. That helps. We were in a trailer. You know how awful it is to have a bad marriage in a trailer? You know what it's like to pass each other in the hallway when you're not speaking? I'm not speaking to you. A man is tiny in here. Horrible. 
We got a bad marriage in a mobile home. That thing's got a, a hitch on the front of it. It's like, ah, we got no money. I was making 10,005. You think you got financial problems? Talk to the hand. $10,500 a year and two kids. We had a car that ran every other day. And so I just say all that for you to, so this is one beggar sharing with other beggars where I found bread. So please take it that way. Oh my goodness, everything I'm about to share with you, I had to learn. I had to learn. And it didn't seem to even matter that I'm a reader. That's, that's a huge mistake that I made. So, so feel good. Those of you that are non-readers, it's okay. As much as I like to read, I thought, I've read all these marriage books. It didn't matter. When you're prideful and you're selfish, you just take everything you read and you still spin it. And if there's a chapter about the man being a servant and a chapter about the woman, you just think, I hope she reads that chapter. That's what pride will do to you and selfishness. So even all the reading that I've done, so what I'm going to share with you, I mean, this had to be learned in the trenches. And God had to break me down and I had to repent. But oh my goodness, when we came to that point, and by the grace of God, I repented and Vicky repented. We both. And uh, I'm not going to talk about what was wrong with her because there was just barely anything wrong. But there was a little wrong. But it's not my place to talk about her. I'm going to talk about me a lot. With just not understanding what does it even mean to be a husband? What does it mean to be a husband? So in our two sessions tonight, we're going to dig into God's word. And this is going to, be, this is going to sound radical, some of it. You're going to have to push off the table. What would the world say about a man and a husband? Or what would the world even say about a woman as a wife and her role? The world is so off the mark now. Listen, and from our, just, just the commercials that we'll see while we watch March Madness, which you should, to the glory of God, be watching. Ain't a thing wrong with that. The influence of our world is just so huge in shaping our thinking. Oh my goodness, we have to come back to God's word and be renewed to say, wait a minute. And some of it's going to sound like, you're kidding me, really? And I want to give in advance, I just did something I had decided I wasn't going to do. I pulled my left hamstring Wednesday night at the gym. I've been on ice for two days. So if I just go down in a crumpled heap, I've not been shot. It's just, it's my left hammy. So I've got a chair right over there just in case. Because I thought, man, I got to make sure I don't do things I normally do. So right here, right here, keep it right here. It's like, like my walker right here. This will be when I, me when I, I'm getting ready for when I'm preaching when I'm old with two little tennis balls on the front corners. I'm still going to be high energy, but I won't move to the left or the right quite as much. That's what's coming. Here we go. If we don't know the biblical role, there's no way. God, God thought of marriage. But it isn't going to work if men don't understand what it really means to be a husband and if women don't really understand what it means to be a wife. And I'm going to start with the men. You'd think you'd say, well, ladies first. But I'm going to start with the men. Because according to the scriptures, we set the tone, guys. And he designed women much more to be responders. If we don't get our role right, they almost can't get theirs right. So I'm starting with us. 
Here we go. What does the Bible say about a husband, biblical husband? I see three key roles in the scriptures for biblical husband. Number one, we're supposed to be the leader. We're supposed to be a leader, but I don't want you to tense up, ladies. And guys, I don't want you to puff up. And so that's right. I've been saying that for a while now. I'm the leader, woman. That's, we're going to dig into this. That is not. When you go to the Bible and say, okay, what does it mean that you're a leader? Oh, wow. It's very different than sometimes what the conclusion we jump to. The husband is to lead his wife. And yet I have to say, men and women, because something can be abused, could leadership be abused? Does it get abused? Do husbands abuse it? Do Christian husbands abuse it? Yes. Just because something can be abused does not mean it should be abolished. We have a tendency in our day to say, but when you head that way, here's the abuse of that, so let's do away with it. There is no leader. That'll work. Right. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's confusion and chaos. So we got to hold on to leader, but figure out what does the Bible say about this? The biblical foundation for the husband's leadership. So what is the foundation of this? Why does God bring this to us in this way? Well, you have to go back to the beginning, the very first book in the Bible, Genesis, where you see God's creation order. The order of creation establishes the husband's leadership. God created Adam first, then Eve, and she was God's gift to man who did not have a helper suitable. Then God declared the husband to be the leader. He created Adam, and then he declared the husband to be the leader in Ephesians 5, 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. Now notice this. On this issue of marriage and roles, all throughout the scriptures, he'll continually come back to whenever he even gives the husband a a description like head, he quickly points to as Christ is the head of the church. And therefore, when you think about Christ, he sacrificed. He sacrifices for the church. He pays a cost for the church. He serves the church. He washed the feet of his disciples. So if you're heading down there in a wrong way, thinking, oh, uh, that scares me to think of him as being the head, take a deep breath, as Christ is the head of the church. This is loving, servant leadership. The biblical view of the husband's leadership in Matthew 20, 25 to 28 You can see the same problems we run into today they had back then, where the disciples had a wrong view of leadership, and Jesus called them to himself, and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, the culture, the marketplace today, lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great... Among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus had to put, if you think about it, it's sad as you read the Gospels even. Right to the very end 
you've got the disciples on the way to the upper room to have their final supper with Jesus. What's their discussion? How concerned they are for their their Savior, the Messiah, all that is coming that he's about to face. No, they're having an argument on the way to the upper room about, anybody remember? Who's going to be the greatest? We even got one of them's mama. Mamas don't change, do they? James and John's mama came and said, Jesus, I have a special request. He says, what? That my sons may sit on your right and your left. And all the other disciples said, oh, please. I can send my mama too. I didn't do that. They're fighting over who's going to be the greatest, the greatest, the greatest. And Jesus said, that's not biblical leadership. And sometimes it, sometimes it helps to hit it head on and just push off the table what it's not. So think of it this way. Here's what biblical leadership in the home or anywhere, but we're talking marriage here, in the home is not. It's not a top-down lord it over them. That's not biblical leadership, which would look like this. You at the top and all those, whether it's your wife and your children, as your subjects under you. Here's what biblical leadership is. It's serving, serving. So it looks like this. I'm the husband in this home and I've got a wife. And if God blesses you with children, I've got children. And it's my job, yes, to lead. So don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't hear me saying there's never a time that you need to say, this is what I really think we need to do. But oh, that goes so much better when Day after day after day after day, the overall tone of how you lead is that you serve. They can see you're concerned for them. What's best for them? I'm I'm asking questions to know what everyone's thinking, what's going on, and how I can care for them, those that God has called me to serve. See, the real test of whether or not someone's a servant, if you're sitting here, guys, and you're thinking, okay, yeah, I mean, I brush the hair out of the sink after I finish shaving, I'm a servant. We're just trying to think, what, what, how, would I, how would I know? You really don't know until someone treats you like one. And what do you find rearing up within you? That's when you really know what kind of heart you have. I've never forgotten the story that my Bible f- professor told us. I went to Columbia Bible College in South Carolina. And... The founding president was McQuilkin. And he was a great Bible teacher and a great leader. But he was the guest speaker at a hotel in Asheville, North Carolina for a big Christian Bible conference weekend. And he, and he went down, he checked into the room and he went down into the main area. And I do this sometimes. I have opportunities sometimes to speak other places. And I like to see the room where I'm gonna speak, just feel a little better, get the lay of the land, walk around a little bit, greet people. Rather than sitting in my room, I just get worked up and nervous. So just, just get out there and check it out. So he goes down and he happens to see the big room where he's going to be speaking in. And they're bringing the chairs in and they're setting up for the conference. He just takes off his sport coat, rolls up his sleeves and decides, I'm going to help. He's carrying chairs in and he's helping. And as he went back out into the foyer to get another stack of chairs to bring them in, there was a woman checking in for the conference at the counter This was a spin-the-night kind of conference, so, you know, everybody has their luggage. She's got luggage on each side of her. When she finishes, she turns around, 
And she sees him and she says, he was young at this point, boy, get my bags and take them to my room. He just walked over, picked up her bags, followed her to her room. She opened the door. He went in the room. She put, he put them down. She didn't thank him. She didn't tip him. Nothing. And then that night, there she sat with her notebook and her Bible study Bible and her colored pencils. And she watched that same man step up onto the platform to speak. Now that's a servant. The real test is when there's going to be times, guys, when you think, Here, here's the deal. Here's the real deal, isn't it? I'm willing to be a servant, but I choose when. I say when. Don't ever assume servant on me or I'll push back because I'm actually not a servant. I'm the leader. Right? So think about that. Think about that because we can be so self-deceived about how well we're doing or not. The real test of a servant heart is how you respond when you're treated like one or when you're not treated with all the deference or whatever it is you think ought to be there. Consider the contrast between the world and God's word of what leadership looks like. There's a huge difference between dictator, right? And godly leader. Let me just highlight a few. Look at this. The dictator is proud. The godly leader, not perfectly, but is seeking to put on, at least has it in mind, right? We're, we all struggle with pride. But if you're not even thinking about it, if it's not on your radar, think how often the scriptures say, humble, what? Yourselves. And every time I see that, I've got them highlighted in orange. I always think, God's, God has two plans for us, guys. Plan A is humility. Plan B is humiliation. I want to be working so hard on plan A, God doesn't have to shift to plan B for me. Does that make sense? That's why it says so often, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Humble your... Guys, God has entrusted... If you're here and you're married, God has entrusted into your care one of his precious daughters. You know how, if you have some daughters, I do, you know how you feel about them when that guy starts to date them and you just think, whew, if this doesn't go well, I'll kill you. I castrate you first and then I kill you. More thoughts are coming to my mind, but we'll start with that. Ramp that up in a very holy, godly way. So I don't know if castration comes to his mind or not. There's no mention in the scriptures. But these are his precious, she was his precious daughter created in his image before she ever said, I do to you. And he watches how you treat her. Loving servant leader. The dictator has no accountability because I'm the leader. I just, I just unilaterally do whatever. The godly leader welcomes accountability. Dictator makes all the decisions. Godly leader seeks counsel. 
Dictator expects others to serve him. Godly leader serves. Dictator, sinful communication, manipulation, lies, whatever it takes to get my way. Dictator, selfish, what's best for me? Godly is focused on others. There's just a huge contrast. Again, I, the reason I started the way I did is because I know right now some of you might be thinking, oh, please, all right, this is why I didn't want to come. We're 20 minutes into it and I feel wretched. Nobody's doing all of that perfectly, guys, including me. But just hear me, hear me just wanting to get on your radar that this leadership thing looks so different than worldly, dictatorial, top-down leadership that causes our world and women very often to say, I want nothing to do with that. It can't be a good thing. There's no way it's good for me. The way Jesus Christ led, was it good for his followers? That was weak. So we're supposed to lead like he led. Was he the leader? Absolutely. So there's two ditches to fall into. They didn't just go around through the town saying, there's no leader. We just all make decisions. There was a leader. But he led in a way that it was good for his followers. They didn't always understand what he was doing. But they were convinced he had their best interest in mind. The greatest example of servant leadership is Jesus. So guys, don't think of your dad, even though he may have been a great one. Or her dad, as you've gotten to know him, think, well, he's even better. Who we should be thinking of is Jesus Christ. Because what gets us in trouble when we think my dad or her dad is it's very hard to shake from whatever I saw growing up. I assume that's the way. My dad never. Well, you know what? That doesn't matter what your dad didn't do. My dad never. Would Jesus have done it? My dad never changed a diaper. Well, that was dumb. My dad never picked up groceries. My dad never ran a vacuum cleaner. That's the very definition of a man. Well, renew your mind, my friend. Right? We, we got to be careful that we're not just thinking, what did I see? And that's got to be right. Jesus never said, do you know who I am? Now, he turned to his disciples and said, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. But I'm talking about that where you're trying to remind everybody else. Guys, I don't know what's going on in your home. I don't have anybody in mind. But if you are having to remind your wife or you think you need to remind your wife that you're the leader, something's not right. You say, I know. Something's not right with her. That's why I have to keep saying this. (laughs) No, I'm saying something's not right. If you're constantly saying, woman, I'm the leader, okay? Something's not right. When you lead well, you think about it. Number one definition of leader, look over your shoulder and see if anybody's following. If they're not, you're not a leader. Leaders aren't leaders because they declare it so loudly and so often. Finally, people fall in line and say, okay, it's a little man that keeps proclaiming out loud to everyone who he is and what he is. Jesus, Jesus didn't do that. Even at the very end with disciples who had argued their way to that room. Imagine, he knows everything. He knows they just argued their way up there as to who is the greatest. 
And then it should be no surprise, and it wasn't to Jesus, that, oops, once they get there, the person who let them use that upper room had provided everything necessary. Table, bowl, water, towel, meal, no servant. Nobody to wash feet. And so everybody's sitting there, or lying there, that's how it was in that day, You would lay on your side, reclining at a low table. So the feet are all out, all the way around the table. Heads are towards the table, feet are all out. And somebody needs to wash feet. And nobody moves. Can you imagine the thoughts that were running through heads? I'm one of his first. I mean, he said, come follow me. I was one of the first. One of the new guys can do this. Or I'm the oldest. I'm one of his favorites. I lie on his bosom. Right? I'm one of the ones he took to the top of the mountain. There were only three of us that saw the transfiguration. Let some non-transfiguration guys wash feet. Right? I mean, we all... Isn't it true how our minds just spin with why it's anybody but us? And then lo and behold, who got up? Jesus. Gets up. Takes off his outer garment. Wraps himself in the servant towel and begins to wash feet. And here's the point that I want to make. It's the person who's most confident and clear about who they are. And that they are a leader that can serve. It's the insecure, unsure, unclear man that hesitates or runs from serving the most. Does that make sense? Jesus knew who he was. I love how it's worded. Jesus, because I hate Hollywood's version, right? I don't even watch him, but when I see it, he's skinny and yellow, and he just kind of looks like he's on prescription meds, and he's just not sure who he is. Jesus knew who he was. He was a carpenter for crying out loud. He had four arms. He had some sawdust chips there. He's, he's tan. He's been walking around. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. He's not a person that lacks position or authority. And that he had come from God. He knew where he'd come from. And then he was going to God. He knew where he was headed. Rose from supper and laid aside his garments. See, I remember earlier in our marriage. Don't hear me saying I do it perfectly, guys. But when I was still so busy trying to prove a point and was just like more unsure, like, well, I didn't think it was going to be like this. No. I pulled back. When you're settled and you know you're following Jesus Christ, and you know who you are, what he's called you to do as a husband, you're leaning in. Again, many times I'm still clueless. Please know. I just totally miss opportunities. But I'm talking about when I saw it, and I said to myself, oh, no, 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 no. Now, at least when I see, I think, well, yeah. Well, yeah, I'll get up. I'll do that. I should do that. I'll serve. I'll help. I'll relieve her. Rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself, poured water, and began to wash feet. Including the feet of who? Who else was there? You say, but she's mean. 
I don't like her. She's hurt me. Who else was sitting there? Judas. He washed his feet. Leader. And when you think leader, think servant leader. Servant leader. Number two. You say, oh, good. Let up on that because I got this one, man. Lover. (laughs) I am a lover. If I'm anything. Yeah. Oh, well. Let's, let's look at this, too. See, my goal is by the time the hour is done, you're just like, I'm nothing. <laughs> Which is okay. That's where I had to get to then get where I needed to be. Because until you just see yourself as, oh, I can't do it. That's the perfect starting point now. I got to look to Jesus and say, okay, let's just clear the decks and start over here. Because on this one, at least I thought, I got this. The husband is to lead his wife. And when when you think leadership, you think servant. The husband is to love his wife. You think about it in Ephesians 5, which is the classic marriage passage in the Bible. When you think about marriage, most often you do think Ephesians. Three times this passage commands husbands to love their wives. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. But notice how often, again, leadership had a revolving hinge that said... You're the head as Christ, which means he, oh man, he, he did what was best for followers. Here we got love, but you love just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it. Verse 28, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. Verse 33, nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. Three times. Now, don't hear me saying that wives are not commanded to love their husbands. But in Ephesians 5, it's not stated. And guys, I think it's because of the two sexes, we do this poorly. Poorly. Three times he says, husbands, love your wives. You say, I do. He says, no, I don't think you're hearing me. Verse 28, love your wives. Got it. No, I don't think you do. Verse 33, love. When the Bible repeats things, I think it's worth noting. What is going on here? I think it's because we do it so poorly. Two observations about this. This is a command to love, not an option. It's a command to love. It's not something that you can take or leave. And Paul repeats it three times. It's emphasized because I think this is an area where we truly struggle. Especially if you don't understand what it really means to love. So he's not saying there's some kind of feeling I have to have every day. Now that truly would be terrifying. That's not what he's commanding. Because when you dig into the Bible, and we've been digging as a church family in our series right now. Those words there, love, he's talking about agape, love. So the word agape, love, in the original language was a strong, buckle up, guys, non-sexual, oh, for crying out loud, non-sexual affection. Yeah. There's a place for eros, but he isn't saying eros her. I'm telling you what, eros again. Eros, you're not getting this. No, no, it's the agape that we don't get. 
a strong non-sexual affection for someone else that is characterized by a willingness to lay aside your own rights and privileges for the good of another. Expecting how much in return? You say, oh, who can do that? Jesus. So it just keeps going back. I'll, I'll say it to you this way. If you're here and you're married, men, and you haven't yet been crying out to God saying, I can't do this, then you're not even on first base. It shows you really don't understand what we're called to. You can't do what we've been called to. I can't do what I've been called to. But the day I realized that was a really good day so that I could begin to say, oh God, you've got to orient me this way. You've got to help me. This has to be something supernatural. Gary Thomas says, divorce represents our inability to hold to Jesus's command. It's giving up on what Jesus calls us to do. If I can't love my wife, how can I love the homeless man in the library? How can I love the drug addict or the alcoholic? Yes, this spouse might be difficult to love at times, but that's what marriage is for. I think this is very helpful, what he's about to say. Some of you might not like it, but I think it's very helpful to teach us how to love. Allow your marriage relationship to stretch your love and to enlarge your capacity for love to teach you to be a Christian. Use marriage as a practice court where you learn to accept another person and serve him or her. See, I think we're guilty in our culture of just thinking it's this feeling and I had it when we were dating and that's why I asked her to marry me. But the days I don't have that feeling, I don't want to be a hypocrite. Let me help you. Please, it's not being a hypocrite for you to lean into serving and laying aside your rights and doing something for the good of another. Even while you say, even while I don't feel it, I shouldn't do something when I don't feel it. Yes, you should. That's called putting on your big boy pants and growing up and pleasing the Lord. Oh my goodness, if you only do what God's called you to do when you feel it, huh. I, I, I smile how often I get this when I'm trying to counsel people and help them. And they're like, they think they're being so authentic. I'm being authentic because I'm not feeling it right now. So we're not doing a date night. I'm not gonna do anything nice because I don't feel it. I'm true, true to myself. All right, what about Monday? How many of you will be true to yourself when the alarm goes off and you say, I'm not feeling it. I, don't, I feel nothing for fidelity. I don't wanna to go to that hill again and answer that phone. I don't want a balloon tied to the back of my chair. I don't want any of it. I've had it. Citibank, Fidelity, whatever your company is. And I, I know they don't want me to be a hypocrite. So I didn't go today. Yeah, well, welcome to unemployment. Yeah, you do things you don't feel all the time. Guess what? You can please your way. You can please God and do what he says do and lead your feelings in a new direction far sooner than you can just sit and wait for the right kind of feeling to show up before you do anything. Love is an action. It is giving to the needs of another. 
laying aside rights. And please don't hear me saying it's a joy to be in a marriage where you never feel anything. But is it not true no matter what kind of marriage you have, there are times you really feel it. Sorry, baby. And times you don't. I can't remember the last time I had that day anymore. But there's going to be those times. And it shouldn't hurt your feelings, ladies. And it shouldn't hurt your feelings. Guys, you want someone who is in this marriage and is committed to pleasing God no matter how they feel. You really don't want someone who's saying, I'm in it for the feelings. Or you really don't want someone who's in it because I'm in it for how you look. That changes. No matter what you do. I blew out a hammy trying to still look good. You just can't keep doing it. You know? It's like no matter what you do, it's like, bummer. I mean, because it was just last Thursday, I blew out my left peck. And so that's what caused me to have a leg day. I was like, oh, chest is out. That hurts. Let's do legs. Now I'm down to just show, pretty sure I'm going to go do index fingers. <laughs> People are going to say, what are you doing? That's all I have left. That's not hurt. You know, it's sad. It's like, oh my goodness, things change. What are some wrong views of love? We say love, what are some wrong views? Well, we kind of hit on this love as a feeling. Love is more than a feeling. There is a feeling with it, but oh man, the root system for love, the foundation for love, what keeps it alive is commitment and the willingness to give for the needs of an... News alert, if you didn't know this as an American, do you know that the statistics for longevity on marriage in countries where they have someone else pick their spouse for them is just as good or better than us? Don't feel sorry for them. Say, I don't want my parents picking. Well, then you start off already not liking them. You think, I would never pick you. But we start off and we're shocked because we're like, I'm not marrying anybody except the one that I think Oh, when I'm with her, I have a feeling like I've never had before. Well, what if someone just says, oh, here's LaDon. She does nothing for me, but we're getting married. Then you have to just choose to give and to build a life together. But, but here's the other good news. I don't think you would interview those couples and they'd all say, oh, my goodness, I still feel nothing. Feelings grow in the context of commitment. And as you suffer together and a baby dies and you walk through it together and cancer strikes and you walk through it together and, and you stay and you go through something and all of a sudden you wake up and you say, oh my, I have a feeling. But it didn't start with a feeling. Love is sex. Sex is the icing on the marriage cake. But love is far more than sex. And certainly doesn't start with sex. Love is weak. Here's where men, I don't know how much you're still hanging on to this. At least we have a culture now that has shifted some. You know, I mean, there's skinny jeans and I don't know if that's helped men know they can love or not. But I'm just saying we don't have any more. It's not just John Wayne. We got men that I don't know what's wrong with them. So maybe they're more into love. But in, in general, sometimes men think, oh, that's a, that's a woman thing. I work hard, I provide, I don't say much. And that whole love thing, that's for the women. Not according to the Bible. Jesus was a lover. 
So don't think of it as weak. Think of it as a man, a man's virtue, because it's Jesus. What is the biblical definition of love? Giving for the needs of another without the ulterior motive of expecting anything in return. That's agape love. When you go through the scriptures, you see love and giving connected repeatedly. That it's something you give. It's not just something you feel. Galatians 2.20. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. How do I know? He loved me and gave himself up for me. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Ephesians. Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Love and giving. See guys, real men, I don't know what you have in mind because our culture still gets it so wrong. It's not that you can shoot something and I'm not against shooting. It's not that you can hunt. I'm not against that. It's not that you like something with big wheels and loud engines and a huge exhaust system. None of that is indicative of a man. It's not how much beer you can consume. It's not extreme sports. Don't hear me saying you can't have an interest in it. But none of that is what characterizes the very definition of a man. Real men act and think like Jesus. But if you grew up in church like I did, I don't want you to think of that picture we had on the hallway that showed him there. As a boy, I just thought, I hope I never get like that. I don't know what happened to him. No. No. Real men think and act like Jesus Christ, the greatest lover. So when you hear the word love, don't just think sex. And when you hear the word love and you think of love as something other than sex, don't just think the women in the home. Your kids, if you have kids, guys, should grow up and leave the home thinking of you as being a great lover. Dad was a lover. Dad was loving. Now, your personality may differ within the context of whatever your personality looks like. I'm just saying, I don't think it's an excuse for guys to get a grace card that, well, I'm a guy. And so when I hear kids say, my dad never told me He loved me. Well, it's because he's a guy. No. It's because he didn't understand who he's supposed to be following. Jesus. The greatest lover. They need to know you love them. Your wife needs to know you love her. Now, how's she going to know that? Hey, you got to say it. But it's not enough to say it and then not back it up. So that just gets even worse. So we got women who don't hardly ever hear it. I love you. Then we got women who hear it and think, whoo, I'd like to believe that. But there's nothing that backs that up because you don't hardly ever give or serve. It's just kind of all about you. I talked about McQuilkin. Well, his son, R.C., or I mean, sorry, Robertson McQuilkin was the president when I was there. And he married Muriel And I'll never forget the day in chapel, all of us are gathered. 
This was a brilliant man who'd written books on hermeneutics, how to study the Bible, missions books and theology books. And he traveled around the world speaking. And when his wife, Muriel, began to deteriorate with onset of Alzheimer's, at first, you know, she was just a little, hmm, something's not quite right. And then it got to where she was walking two miles from their house to the campus just to be with him. And unless she was around him, she was just unsettled, not at peace. And she was doing it so many times a day that her feet were bleeding at night. And he was, I believe he was 52. That's not old. I turn 54 tomorrow, so let me assure you, that's not old. (laughs) 52 is a buck, young buck. And he announced to the school that he was retiring, stepping away from all of that to care for Muriel himself full time. Now he had spoken in chapel. He had preached some amazing messages. He had taught some amazing courses. Oh, listen to me. That was his greatest sermon that he ever gave to any of us. I was just, I still remember I had to go down Monticello Road was this road that I had to go down for a doctor's office. And they just had a simple little house on Monticello Road because I don't know how they're making ends meet, you know, on royalties from a hermeneutics book. How many people buy those? Not a lot of people. So you're eating ramen noodles in your little house. And there was a screened in porch. And I would always look to my left as I went by in my Buick Skylark Because almost always, there he was. And he has his arm around her on the swing. She could no longer speak. He can't have a a conversation about scripture or anything. Just with Muriel. And I find myself thinking, most people as they go, but they don't even know who that is. Do you know who that is? And he says he went to some workshops to try to get help. It's not like he was trained in this. You know, How do you care for somebody? I want to do this well. And all his testimony was amazing where he said, she has cared for me all these years in our marriage. This is my turn and I'm glad to do it. And so then as he attended these workshops, it was only then that he found out from the people that, you know, secular people that lead these They were amazed. So the story began to spread because some of you may have read about it. It got printed up in Christianity Today, some other things. And he just couldn't figure out what what is the big deal? Because he had the mindset of Jesus, love her, serve her. And he says it was only then that he began to hear and read articles that said, women stay with their men in situations like that. But almost no men stay with their women. Love. Love. Sacrificial love. What degrees? What degrees are we to love, guys? You say, what would it look like? You love first. Again, we keep going back to Christ. You love first. So don't be guilty of saying, well, I'll give a little if she'll give a little. Nope. Jesus loved us first while we were yet sinners. So don't have the mentality that she sets the tone and you'll respond back. You set the tone. Love her. Love her first. We love because he first loved us. 
Love her most. Jesus, it was said, greater love has no man than this. Then he should lay down his life for another. Most. If you could hold a contest in your home, guys, of who loved the most, the husband should win. Every time. Because we're supposed to be Jesus. 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 Sacrificially. Not just when it's easy. I heard C.J. Mahaney say it one time and it stuck with me and I wrote it down. I know I haven't been doing it perfectly, but it helped me to think this way. That at the end of a day, he said, you should, he said, gentlemen, what are you doing each day for your wife that involves sacrifice? Now, don't think the wrong things. It doesn't mean every day, swing by Kroger's, grab a box of chocolate, grab a bunch of those flowers. In some ways, guys, don't mean to hurt your feelings. That's easy. When I say sacrifice, it can be absolutely financially free. But it means you are bone tired and you are in your chair, which is not wrong. I have my chair. But from your chair, you sense chaos somewhere in the kingdom. And instead of sitting there and thinking, I work hard and I'm home. And when you say home, there's just this sense of the drawbridge coming up and, and people in fuzzy little pointy hats scurrying around you. No, no. When you came home, you entered into your most important area to serve. And say, what can I do to help? It sounds like chaos in there. I don't always get it right, but once you get going on this, guys, there's a great joy in this. So I hope you're not sitting there thinking, oh man, I don't know. I don't know if I can do this. There is a joy once you get, I mean, we'll go back and forth sometimes now where I'm exhausted. It might be I've had late meetings three nights in a row and I came home from a meeting and I'm in the kitchen and she's fixed a nice meal and I could easily say, all right. I'm going to go to my chair, but I'll say, hey, let me clean the kitchen. Especially when we had kids. We had five kids, but I still do it. We have a 17-year-old, but I don't say, ah, I don't have a 17-year-old. She shouldn't be tired. doesn't matter. I want to love. I want to serve. It's good for my flesh. I want to be like Jesus. So we'll go back and forth. I'm like, no, I'm going to do it. No, you're not. Yes. Go take a bubble bath. Go read Reader's Digest. Go call your sister. Go play that pseudo game with your friend in West Virginia. Whatever you want to do, go do something. Um, now, here's the deal. This isn't wrong. I'm playing kitchen cleaning music. So go far away because bad company is about to join me. So, I mean, there's a little bit of, I'm not cleaning in silence. It's like, that's the deal. So the Bose is going loud and it's like, feel like making just a reminder at the end of this kitchen thing no (laughs) get it all planned out i'm in the kitchen and bad company is reminding us where we're headed no (laughs) no try to play boston more than a feeling more than a feeling but we we're gonna go 70s electric guitar loud and then it's just a great joy clean the kitchen unmistakably 
You love first, you love most, you love sacrificially, you love unmistakably. And by that it means it shouldn't be a question of, I don't know, does he love me, does he not? And, and to do this well then, guess what? You got to know what hits the mark with your woman. So as I've learned her, then I want to do what really hits the mark with her. So it's unmistakable in spite of faults. And number three, learner. Leader, lover, learn her. Oh, my goodness. I was not doing well on the first two, but I'm telling you what, guys, I got a big F on that third one. It wasn't even on my radar. I didn't even know this. I was that guy, and maybe this is you that thought, it's all about marrying the right person. I read books. I thought about this. I prayed about this. I chose her, and now we're done. Oh, my goodness, that was tragic. So 1 Peter chapter 3 tells us, guys, you gotta, you got to learn her. Husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way. That doesn't just mean be nice. That word understanding is a Greek word that's a classroom word that means go to school on your wife. You don't have to understand every woman in the world. So I don't think it's helpful all the jokes about, well, women, you know, they just don't make sense. No. That's a lie. They're created in the image of God. It makes perfect sense to God and women. And then you need to cry out to that God for it to start to make sense to you with at least once. You can say, I don't understand all kinds of women at work, but my wife, I'm starting to understand her. You have to believe it's possible first, right? If you take the attitude of, oh, I'll never, never understand her. Yeah, then you never will. God won't command us to do something that's not possible. Oh, I started saying, God, help me. I started watching this woman. I had to, to understand someone, you got to listen. Listen. When I learn that she's into baby pine cones, I'm looking for baby pine cones. <laughs> I could go on. I want to I learn her. I cannot lead. Can, you can't lead someone well if you don't know them well. You can't love someone well if you don't lo- know them well. So really, these first two are dependent upon this third one. To just jump in and say, I know a lot about leadership. Do you know a lot about her? Then you probably won't lead well. I know a lot about love. Do you know a lot about her? You still probably won't love well. I've got to learn her. So if you haven't formed the habit yet of praying, oh God, help me. Help me to pick up on and learn her and know her and listen to her. Listen. And this learning is a command. It's not optional. It's not a suggestion. First Peter 3 says, learn her. Live with her in an understanding way. I know it might seem more complicated. There's more to learn. But it's worth it. It's worth it. I mean, I'm 31 years into this now. And I've got about half those switches figured out now. (laughs) And it's exciting to think about what the purple light could actually mean. And I have hope (laughs) that before Christ returns. But it's like, she's, she's a beautiful, delightful creature that is worth knowing. It's worth it. Why? Because I want to lead her well. I want to love her well. And so I've got to learn her. It's a command that requires time. 
This won't happen in a hurry, guys, right? But think about the things we invest time in, whether it's fly fishing and you read articles or whether it's sports and you read articles and you sit in front of the TV. I do a number of different things that all take my time. Why would it not be worth investing time in your marriage? Learning your wife. It's a command that requires study. It's a command that includes being mindful of her weakness. This is not to say that she's less important or not in the image of God, but the Bible teaches that she is the weaker vessel, as in fine china, whereas we are clay pots. So be mindful. Be mindful. You husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. It doesn't mean that she's weaker positionally. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. She's every bit as equal as a child of God before her Savior as you are. And grace is equal. You're both co-heirs. It doesn't mean weaker intellectually. In fact, you may have a wife that's far smarter than you. And you say, I know she is because she said yes to me. She's brilliant. (laughs) That's my point. And honoring is a command. Honor her. Honor her. Show her honor. Sometimes, guys, we're so big on, we don't want to be disrespected. Hey, the Bible says, honor her. Don't talk to her in a disrespectful way. Don't be harsh. And both these commands, oh, by the way, impact our spiritual lives. I don't want my spiritual life screwed up. It says, you husbands, live with her in an understanding way and grant her honor so that your prayers may not be hindered. And in the original language, it's a picture of when they had a war and one army would take a bunch of stuff and throw it across the road, sharp instruments, or just literally break up the road so that the army couldn't get through there. That's the picture there. If you are not living with your wife in an understanding way, it breaks up the road between you and God. So every time I have a guy that has a horrible marriage who sits there and says to me, oh, things between me and, me and Jesus are great. Just can't stand her. Liar. No, no way. The Bible teaches this relationship between you and your Savior is impacted by this relationship between you and your wife. Oh God, I pray that you would help every single one of us, including me, starting with me, to be Jesus. And we all say, can't do it. Oh, I'm still so selfish and so clueless. But oh, thank you that you've promised if we'll cry out, you'll help us. And you've given someone, us, someone for us to fix our eyes on, our Savior Jesus, the greatest leader and lover. Help us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.